0: Mighty Heavenly Father, what a hymn of assurance that we have uh, just sung. What a, a great assurance we have as your children, as your people, those who have been called by thy name, to know that we are safe in Jesus' arms. And we see, Father, that theme and that assurance all through your word. And we're so grateful, Father, that you've communicated to us, your children to those whom you have uh, elected and called out that we are safe in the arms of Jesus and that we have no f- need for fear or um, worry about the things that are all about us and the things that may come. And we thank you, Father, that you have called us for, to a patient endurance and faithfulness to you. And we thank you, Father, that you have not just called us to these things, but you have proven yourself that you are worthy to be trusted. And we thank you, Father, for the testimony of your word that points to who you are and your faithfulness. We praise you for that, Father. We thank you. And may we diligently seek to grow in faith as we would look into your word and to understand more and more your character and who you are and your desire for us, your children. Father, we thank you for the uh, privilege this morning of being together. We ask for your blessing to be upon this place, Father, as we gather in the name of Jesus. We ask, Father, that the word would be spoken in truth and in simplicity, and that it it would go forth and accomplish what you have uh, intended it for it to do. We ask, dear Father, that your Holy Spirit would be welcome in our hearts here, that we would not resist him and his teaching and his leading, but that we would willingly sit at his feet to be taught, to have the truth illuminated to us, that we would better understand uh, the truth of the word. And we thank you, Father, that we could fellowship together as uh, men and women believers in Jesus Christ. And as a family, as a church family, may we bear one another's burdens. May we approach each other with a sincere love and a desire for uh, fellowship, but also for uh, a a kindness and and a peace among us and a building up of one another. Father, we want to uh, pray for Brother Gary as he would submit himself to the leading of your Holy Spirit, as he would Uh, preach the word we pray that you would anoint him um, and give him the words to uh, speak words that are not his own words that are not uh, drawn from his wisdom or his intellect but words that are drawn from the source of living water your eternal word father we also want to remember those among us who are uh, struggling uh, struggling in their health we want to pray specifically for sister aaron and uh, the surgery that she will undergo this Thursday. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be with her and give her comfort, give her uh, confidence and a deep peace, knowing that her hands, her life are in your hands, that they, she is safe in the arms of Jesus. We pray for her family also, Father, as they would go through this with her and support, uh, support her through this time. We pray that you would also give them confidence and courage and endurance. And for those who would be Given the task of her care, we pray, Father, that you would help them and give them wisdom and give them uh, a heart of compassion. Uh, We thank you, Father, even though the world would deem this to be a risky surgery and perhaps fraught with uh, uncertainty. We know that when we place ourselves in your hands that we are certain. We thank you so much for that, Father. We want to pray for... um, Sister Maria Branca, uh, and she recovers, uh, and God willing, hopefully will come home soon. We pray that you would be with her as well. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity and and making it possible, opening the doors that Brother Glenn and Sister Amara could go to Mexico to minister and and to meet the needs there at the Little Hands Orphanage. We ask, Father, that you would Uh, richly bless them, that you would go before them and prepare the way for them, give them safety on their journey, especially as they um, travel internationally in a confusing time and uncertain times. But yet, Father, we know that nothing is uncertain to you and that nothing is confusing to you. And so we ask, Father, and we place them in your hands that uh, the place that you have sent them to, that you would be there, that you would prepare the way and that you would make the path straight and that the things that uh, they hope to accomplish um, that they would have your blessing that they would be your things your intentions Um, we also want to pray for the operation christmas child Uh, we pray father that in this ministry that we could reach into our community and be a blessing as well and that The love that you show show us would be uh, broadcast to the world as well through this. Um, And we pray that you would raise up many more to uh, fill the need there. And we want to also remember next uh, Sunday as we would gather together to um, uh, sing songs to you at the Inspiration Hour. Uh, We ask, Father, that your blessing would be upon it as well. Be with Brother Thomas as he uh, uh, puts thoughts to paper. And listens to your Holy Spirit and the inspiration that he would give. And we pray for all those who would participate in lifting up your name in in worship and in praise. Father, we ask that uh, through this morning, we would encounter you in a fresh way, in a new way. uh, That it would be uh, transforming to our lives. That it would be um, perhaps even unexpected that we have perhaps come in a rote ceremony or in a way of of just doing what we've always done. But we pray, Father, that you would interfere in our plans, in a sense, that you would um, meet us now in this time as we would look into your word, Father. We are so thrilled with the promises of looking into your word that um, we will be transformed through your Holy Spirit and through the word. And now, Father, in the name of Jesus, we gather together, and uh, we are thankful for your promise that you will be with us, and we pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's
1: a wonderful experience to be able to gather together to worship the Lord and to fellowship one with another. And for this morning's meditation, I'd like to encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. The scripture reads, starting at verse 1, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand." And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer of his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught what he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house and hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment and saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass when she saw him that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he had heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in prison. I'd like to conclude here at verse 20. This story of Joseph, which we began several weeks ago as we're going through the account, resonates as one of my probably favorite narratives in the scripture, and probably many of yours as well, because it covers so many major themes in life. And there's just a few of them that, as we consider the whole life of Joseph, we see the family life. We we read about civil rivalry and division and hatred, and yet how love and forgiveness covers the multitude of sins that they experience. We read about an unstable life, someone who started out as being exalted to become oppressed a rags-to-riches story from prison to prince. We also read about a virtuous life where there's many temptations and morality is on display, some resulting in victories and others in great failure. We also read about national life of great prosperity followed by disaster, followed by deliverance. And prosperity again. And finally, we think of or we read about divine life. We see God's sovereign hand throughout the entire account through the hundred or so years that it covers. And his ability, his unique ability to bring triumph from tragedy, to bring deliverance from evil. And despite the enemy's greatest attempts to Cause God's plan to fail, that God ultimately wins. We finished off on Wednesday evening in Genesis chapter 37, and you'll notice that I've skipped chapter 38. It's a unique chapter, that chapter 38, and I struggled with, it seems completely out of place. And I encourage you, if you don't really haven't read the story of Joseph, to follow along. And you can read it on your own time. And you'll see that it seems to be just something that's kind of stuck in the middle of Joseph. It doesn't even talk about Joseph in chapter 38. It talks about his brother Judah. And we understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration. And that it is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. And so I'll summarize chapter 38 with two major points. That the focus is on Judah. So now we have out of the 12 siblings, the 12 brothers, the focus spotlight turns on Judah and on Joseph. In chapter 38, the focus, the spotlight is on Judah and demonstrates the fact that he is partial. That he is hypocritical. That he is immoral. And that he lives a godless life. And it contrasts that with Joseph. With his virtue. With his morality. With his steadfast belief in God despite whatever situation happens. And his godly life. And so we see these two lives of brothers completely different and contrasted to see or it's on display for us to see. But we also see the theme that God promised Abraham that from his seed that the whole world would be blessed. And Judah places an important role in that account. Because out of chapter 38, we're introduced to a series of twins that are born out of the depth of depravity, in a sense you would would call that that despite the immorality and the sin that is committed there, that one of those twins, Perez, actually is in the lineage of King David and the Messiah and demonstrates again God's sovereignty that he can bring good out of terrible situations and he can redeem sin and have it redound to his glory. That's the purpose I believe that that Moses was inspired to write chapter thirty eight. It's not to glorify immorality or is, is, or, or to, 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 to demonstrate that um, somehow this is uh, uh, because Judah himself becomes in the line of the Messiah that excuses his sin, not at all. He had to pay a heavy price for it, but demonstrates these things that <clears throat> God, in God's sovereignty, and then just in, in contrast, what we've read here in chapter thirty-nine. So we pick up the account in chapter thirty-nine. It doesn't seem like he was in the company of the Ishmaelites; it's he sold there for a long time. Where he sold now into the house of Potiphar, and though he was treated with great injustice by his brothers of being sold like that, and who knows what kind of mistreatment he, he, he uh, experienced as a slave. But as he was in Potiphar's house, he did not play the victim card. He did not have a victim mentality. And what is a victim mentality? That is, <clears throat> basically we can describe it with uh, three themes. Bad things keep happening. And the bad things are happening because of other people or other circumstances. The reason I a person with a victim mentality would think the reason I have bad things happening in my life is because of my spouse. It's because of my neighbor. it's because of my boss at work. It's because of my race, it's because of my gender. and fill in the blank, whether it's people or circumstances. They're all to blame for my trouble. That's the second facet of the victim mentality. And the third facet is that they're just going to continue to happen. I have no control over these things. All these bad things are just happening and I've just resigned myself to my fate. And in reality, in a sense, it's a prophetic. Because if we give in to that victim mentality, it starts to become true in our life. Because we have no motivation to look outside of ourselves for the solution because it's just our oh, woe is me everything is doom and gloom but that is not God's way God's way is that he has a solution for our troubles and our difficulty and is there to help deliver us from it and to walk us walk with us through those situations rather than having us being stuck in whatever circumstance and difficulty we may find ourselves in and so my friend My brother, my sister, we are all tempted with the victim mentality. We see this rife through our society, especially in in the last year, where everyone is playing some particular card to say, I am disadvantaged because of fill in the blank. And I need support, I need knock on the government's door, I need funding, I need this and I need that. All somebody else's fault without taking responsibility and doing the best that we can within the circumstance. Oh yes, I don't want to minimize the fact that there is all kinds of problems that people unjustly receive. Difficulties that are not their fault. And yet in Joseph's circumstance, we see he didn't give into that mentality. No, instead he made the best out of the circumstance. And he lived a godly life. Drawn from his strong belief in God. That he learned from his father. No doubt heard from his grandfather and his great grandfather the the promises that were provided. And that somehow he didn't know the whole story, but that he was going to be faithful and do what he could. And it says that the Lord prospered him. He was blessed. Whatever he put his hand to, as he was diligent in his work, people began to notice and gave him more responsibility and more responsibility. And he kept being promoted to the point where he became the most powerful man in Potiphar's household. Now, Potiphar is not just an ordinary guard. It says he was the captain of the guard, a, a man given a charge to protect Pharaoh And so often would be gone. He didn't have time to focus too much on his own household. And so he put Joseph in charge. Everything, not only his household and his field, his entire affairs. And the only thing he had to worry about, the scripture says, is what he wanted to eat. Everything else was taken care of for him. And he had nothing to worry about. That is the degree to which God blessed Joseph. And now this is not unique in the sense to Joseph. Yes, his circumstance was unique. But this is a concept that Jesus taught when he said, he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. In other words, just like a child that is born, does not know how to crawl, does not know how to move at all, has no locomotion uh, 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 ability, learns to crawl, then learns to walk, and finally learns to run. It's a progressive growth pattern that occurs. And this is not only true in the natural world, in the the physical world as we grow, but also true in the area of our responsibility and our ability to uh, uh, use the talents and the gifts that God has given to us. You don't go from zero to a hundred overnight. We have to follow the principle of being faithful in the things where God has called us. To go the extra mile, to do the best that we can. And God will bless that and prosper that. And you will be given more responsibility in various ways. To be able to use those things that God has given to you and I. To be able to be a blessing and to further his kingdom. And those things have eternal value. But it all begins with faithfulness. It begins with being uh, responsible. And so, an exhortation to our young people: there are many things that you uh, that attract your attention. Easy to become distracted from responsibilities that you have. Don't give in to those distractions. Think about Joseph here. Think about the the the, the promise. That Jesus gives us faithful and little. That in order to prepare for your life ahead, whether you're a teenager, in your 20s, or maybe even in your 30s. Demonstrating responsibility and faithfulness will be a blessing not only in your life, but also the loved ones and others that God brings in your life. And this is his desire for all of our lives. The scripture says, "Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord." For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's a promise. I mean, we take that to heart and not be weary in well doing, as the scripture says. As it's easy to become discouraged, as you think, "What's the point? What's the purpose? I don't see the results right now." And that's the enemy's way of, of trying to tear us down or to, to suppress what God is actually trying to do in your life and in my life. We don't know how many years passed as he was in Potiphar's house, how long it took for him to be promoted through these stages to become overseer. I would surmise it's a number of years and during that time, he was 17 years old as, we, as he was sold into slavery. During that time, he continued to develop as a young man. And it says that he, uh, he was handsome. He was good. He was a nice person to be around. Good personality. And now, Potiphar's wife, he caught her wandering eye. And she... I don't know what the morality was like in Egyptian society there. But as she desired to be with him physically, we see how he responded to that. Now, as a young man, he had every reason to give in to that temptation far away from home. It would appear that God had abandoned him anyways in this, in a sense, this godless society. It would have been easy for him to give in to that temptation. But we see how he responds in three ways to that difficult temptation. First, he realizes that this is sinning against God. First and foremost. And this is how he expresses it to her. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, even if it would have been acceptable by societal standards, and certainly in our postmodern world, as uh, we've certainly in the last decade, this uh, notion of as long as nobody gets hurt, it's okay. Or love is love. Or as long as it's consensual, it's okay. All of these postmodern theories that we are bombarded with in our society today stand in stark contrast to Joseph's response because he knew there is a moral law. And as a moral law, there's a moral law giver. And it isn't up to him to decide what is right or wrong. That's God to decide as he is our creator. And he decreed that this is exceedingly sinful. And he was had wanted no part of this. He also recognized that it would be a betrayal of his responsibility to his master. He had been given great responsibility and he wanted to stay faithful to that responsibility. And the hurt that it would cause to his master not only would be a great sin and hurt against God, but also to his master as well. And the third point is, he made it from that point forward a mission to avoid her, to cut it off, to not allow it to fester and to grow in some in, in, in to grow in in some direction, but he cut it off. But there came a time, Scripture says, that perhaps he was so focused on his responsibility, he wasn't aware that as he went in the house, there was nobody else there. And of course, the enemy saw that and worked through her to try to cause it to come to a head. And the Scripture says he fled to get out and that is the right way to deal with that kind of temptation the in second timothy we, re, we read flee youthful lusts and follow after righteousness and faith and and and, and many other things that it, it exhorts us that these kinds of temptations that cater to the base nature of our sexuality when they are sinful the only response the best response is flee get out Get away. Cut off that situation. Cut off that relationship. Cut off that online social media connection that is leading, that may be leading us down the wrong path. The sin of carnal lust, in particular, produces nearsightedness. We know what nearsightedness is. Those, many of us are, have it wear vision correction with glasses. You can only see things that are close by. You can't see things far off. And, and giving in to that carnal lust is nearsighted because it doesn't think about the consequences, doesn't think about the long-term ramifications of giving in to a moment of pleasure and the lifelong of pain and suffering that it inflicts not only on those that participated, but more often on those around, the loved ones around, the families and the children and, and many who are impacted by something like that. Because it blinds us to the reality of the whole picture. Now, if we, especially in our society now, <clears throat> it is commonplace for people to be physically intimate before marriage. It is now normal. In fact, uh, not too long ago, I had a discussion with a whole group at work prior to COVID where we were able to still gather together where they were astounded that the concept even existed of purity prior to marriage. And had a very interesting conversation on why that's the case and why that giving in to passion prior to marriage is a poor way to find a spouse. Statistics bears this out. Those that engage in physical intimacy prior to marriage have a far greater divorce rate. That seems counterintuitive because in their perspective, as we had this discussion, they were like, well, don't you want to experience marriage life as what it would be like and make sure you're compatible in all areas? And certainly at, at, at face value, you may think, well, maybe that makes sense. But God, who is the designer of all of this, designed it in such a way that passion And the physical intimacy of giving oneself to each other is something that is an expression of love that when someone gives into it prior to a lifelong commitment, we know this physically, chemically in the brain, it connects two people together on all levels. It's not just a physical act. And it also... Begins, in a sense, uh, when someone gives into that, it blinds them to other aspects of the relationship, whether there's compatibility or not. It just all feels so great and wonderful, the euphoria of fresh love and romance, that they totally miss out on the foundational aspects of what makes a godly marriage. They think they can handle any incompatibilities. Belief doesn't matter. If one is an atheist and another one believes in God, irrelevant. They can make it work out. And all kinds of things they completely ignore and don't focus on those fundamental aspects of the relationship because they're blinded. Blinded by the passion that they gave into. And then after a few years, suddenly these things start coming to the surface and often the marriage does not last long because it cannot survive such incompatible uh, worldviews and then it breaks up. And the road of life is littered with brokenness as a result of this upside-down philosophy. Someone once wisely observed that premarital sex is like wanting to enjoy food, the taste of it and the texture of it, but without wanting to ingest it. It's wanting physical oneness without whole life oneness. And you know, if somebody is trying to, has this um, desire to experience food, and there's many delicious tastes and variations that we enjoy, but God designed food to not only be enjoyable in the mouth with our taste buds, but enjoy, but, 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 but designed it so that we're nourished by it. Our whole body is nourished by it. And those that want to just focus on the taste and the texture and don't want to experience the whole life cycle of food, they vomit it out. And that's called a condition called bulimia. And has all kinds of medical side effects. Does terrible things to your body if you only want to focus on the, on the taste and not the whole design that, that God provided. And that's the exact same thing with physical intimacy. God never designed it just for the physical oneness. No, He designed it for the whole person oneness. And that's why it's reserved exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman for life. Because that is where it is best experienced and has the greatest blessing. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that the Apostle Paul calls out sexual immorality is a special kind of sin, that it affects the whole body, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and it's not worth the risk in experimenting and trying to think, is God really right in what he said? Is the the scripture, as it lays out these foundational principles, is it right? The answer is, it is absolutely right. And don't give in to the societal pressures and the things that your friends are doing and think that they are experiencing something unique. If they are experimenting, if they are giving in to these temptations, they are being short-sighted. And there will be severe consequences to pay as a result of that. Now, we don't need a Potiphar's wife in our life to experience these temptations. Yes, it may come to that. Fortunately, that is not an experience that many of us have to make to that degree. But you just need to have unfiltered Internet access to experience those same temptations. You just need to have a social media account to be able to start going down that road. Now, of course, none of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But the enemy wants to use them to bring along these very same temptations into your life and into my life. To cause us to be distracted and pull us off the road that God has planned for us. Parents, our children, are having to deal with temptations that many of us cannot fully fathom that we 're not present to the same degree in our generation and so, as a parent, it is critical that we take responsibility for the protection of our household to help. Our children uh, navigate those difficult years when there's so many voices, so many things that are calling them in, so that they would get off track. We will be offering this week a set of instructions to all parents and to those that are older, young in their late teens and twenties, for how to provide the appropriate protection. On your phone, on your home internet. And I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said that that is the most important task you would have to do all week. If you don't have that now, it's time to do it. High time, overtime, for you to provide protection to yourself and to your home, to those, the members of your own household. And so we will email out those instructions and I exhort and encourage you to not just treat it as any other old email of the many that we have in our inboxes, but to actually take action. Because if we don't, it can birth an addiction that is harder to shake than most illicit drugs. This is not my words. These are the words of those that have researched it. Those that have their PhDs in these areas that far more that know far more than probably all of us collectively together, and that it starts one down a road that is very difficult to reverse. We see pictures and video videos glorifying carnal lust. Or as I mentioned, the social media connections that give excitement because it incites carnality or infatuation or, or 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 feeds those things. And infatuation is just something that looks so great on the outside, and and you don't really look at the real facts below the what is what constitutes this relationship. These feelings I'm I'm feeling about romantic and excitement and these sorts of things. But but are we awakening love before its time? Love is a beautiful thing especially the the whole gift of marriage and se- our sexuality as God is the designer of that and yet he has put constraints around it for our own good and are we willing to abide by those things or it could even be uh, romance novels or or other things as we read that provide completely unrealistic expectations and in some degree, to some degree, when it's taken to the extreme, can actually set us up to have expectations that could never be realized and either prevent us from getting married at all, if that is what God has for us, which is true for probably many of you, many of us, and short-circuit what God has designed for our lives. Now, if we look at uh, <clears throat> at our OMEC meeting back in September, the Ontario Ministers and Elders Conference, Brother Sam um, Klump shared with us the some of the aspects of the upcoming generation and the things that are shaping them. And the thing that really stood out to me in his presentation is the research that the Barna Group has done for multiple decades as they looked at various generations and, and they've characterized four generations. We have now the... Latest generation called Generation Z, or you call them Generation Z, depending on which side of the border you're on. And those are, those are the, uh, characterized by those who were born in year 2000 and later approximately. So those who are now in their late teens and early twenties. And as they did a survey to demonstrate what is the most important thing, this is the first generation that family and marriage have taken a very far back seat. See, in prior generations, the three prior generations, family and marriage was the number one thing for those that were in their late teens and early 20s. Something that they're preparing for, thinking about, and, 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 and prioritizing to be prepared for that. But you see, now the generation, again, this is, of course, very... Um, Uh, This is a generation across millions of people that doesn't characterize any individual, as all statistics are. But as the general trend, marriage and family is now number five on the list. The first three is career, hobbies, and gender and sexuality. Those have now eclipsed the whole aspect of marriage and family and are our secular postmodern world has it appears to be successfully divorcing marriage and sexuality and what a terrible mistake that is because now it's just seen as one of the many other things that one can participate in And yet we see the results of so many broken relationships along the road of life. So many hurts. No permanence anymore in life. Filled with short-term relationships. And the odds are stacked against us because we are bombarded with those lies. They become, after they're repeated, over and over and over again, it seems to be the norm that this is just the way things are. And yet God has a much better and different way. Young people, don't give in to those lies. A godly marriage is a tremendous blessing. And it is something that most of you need, because God has that for you, and you need to prepare for it. You need to work hard in your schooling and in your job. Don't just focus on the thrills of the here and now. You need to be preparing ahead of time for this. Being a husband or a wife is not something that just happens overnight. It requires a significant preparation. And a godly marriage does not just happen when two Christians get married. Yes, that's the beginning of it. But a godly marriage takes investment. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes sacrificial love. And when those are all present, that's when it becomes a godly marriage. And we experience the fullness of God's blessing in that See, the carnal lust that we read about here in this chapter, or we see around us that is just uh, 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 um, demonstrated in so many different ways. It's all empty. And we see Potiphar's wife's response to this. She had no love for Joseph. Because had she had love, she would not have betrayed him in this way and lied to her husband and set him up. So that he would now have to be uh, committed to prison. And that is what happens with carnal lust. It's all about the self. And if the carnal lust is birthed in our hearts and we don't get it. It results in all kinds of other sins as well. It's all selfishly motivated. Again, not God's design. But if we look to the author and maker, the one who designed marriage, in fact, it's the scripture says, "God is love." I believe it requires supernatural strength to be, over, be able to overcome those temptations, to be overcome those philosophies that are bombarding us day in and day out. The scripture says in, in, in Romans the sixth chapter, gives us the solution it says in the 14th verse for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace that is the solution the solution to this temptation and all temptations regardless how difficult they are is that to be under god's grace gives us the power to break sin's dominion over our lives. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. And if you have not experienced that transformation... Have you not experienced God's grace? If you are not under God's grace, it is doubtful that you will be able to be victorious over many temptations that the enemy throws at your life because you are, the scripture says, a slave to sin. But God be thanked that he gives us the ability to experience the power of his grace. If we subject ourselves to, as the scripture says in in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, if we receive Jesus into our hearts, and if we believe with our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe that he has died for our sins, he's rose again, demonstrated his power over death and the grave and sin itself, That he transforms our life into a new being. That we don't have to be slaves to these kinds of temptations. That he gives us the ability, by his grace, to endure and finish well
0: in all our temptations and trials. Amen.